Welcome to Concordia University Sports Space. Thank you so much for joining us for today's event, Growing Out of the System. This event has been organized by the Garnet Key Society. Just to help situate you, we are streaming to YouTube live from Fourth Space, which is located on unceded indigenous lands here in Jojage, Montreal. Here at Fourth Space, we collaborate with our university community to mobilize knowledge by activating the many research projects, conversations, and initiatives in development across the university through daily activities such as this one. All right, that's it for me. It's now my pleasure to hand it over to your moderator today, Yasmin. Welcome. Thank you so much, Anna. So good day, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Whenever you're joining us here at Fourth Space Concordia or virtually uh, on Zoom or YouTube. Uh, now, I would first like to introduce myself as Yasmin. I'm part of the 65th uh, Garnet Key Society here at Concordia. And uh, is, it is our mission this year to support uh, homeless youth in Montreal. And we're doing so through our partnership with La Maison Tangente. Uh, it's, uh, it's located in Montreal, uh, in Oshlaga. Maison Neuve. It's a transition home for uh, young adults who are aged between the 18 and 25. And they offer accommodations and they offer the uh, ability to learn skills such as how to manage finances and provide them with housing. So um, without further ado, I'll uh, gladly present our speakers here today. So uh, we have uh, Dr. Jane Manonfant. Dr. Varda Manfeder and uh, Elisha Olisse. So um, first, uh, I'd like to start with you, Dr. Manonjean. So uh, she used to be an assistant professor here at Concordia in the education uh, faculty, where she taught three courses, including the philosophy of education. Uh, she's now teaching at uh, uh, she's now teaching at McGill, and she's written multiple research articles uh, focused on the topic of uh, youth homelessness. Uh, so her own experience in homelessness has allowed her to engage with her research in a unique way. So can you please tell us today a little bit about yourself and and your research and yeah, feel free. Uh, thank you so much, Yasmin. <clears throat> I mean, I think that covers it. I, <laughs> I think you gave a pretty good summary of my work. Um, yeah, my name is Jane. Um, my pronouns are they, them, or she, her. Uh, I'm from Kapuskasing, Ontario, but I've been here for about six years in Chojage. Um, and yeah, my work uh, begins in my own experiences with youth homelessness um, and educational disengagement while I was a homeless young person. Um, and now it really looks at the intersections between the right to housing, um, the right to education, and young people's experiences and in systems, including the child welfare system, uh, and really looking at lived experience leadership to change systems to better support young people. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, now next we have uh, Dr. Varda uh, Manfeder, uh, who has been a full-time faculty member at the Applied Human Sciences since 1992. She has taught as a seasonal instructor in psychology at Concordia uh, between the years of 1984 and 1992, uh, and has worked as a consulting psychologist in the child welfare system in Montreal since uh, 1976. So she has also taught multiple, she's also teaching multiple courses here at Concordia. And uh, yeah, I, I would like to know a little bit more about you. And I know that you're part of Care Jeunesse. And, and if we can just explore that so that the audience can know. Thank you, Yasmin. <laughs> Very complete biography there. Um, you mentioned I started my career as a psychologist in the child welfare system. And one of my major mandates there was I supported staff who were supporting young people who were moving out of the care system. And frankly, we weren't doing a very good job. 
um, for many reasons. I hope we're going to talk about that. It was a real struggle. There were many, many obstacles for those young people leaving the system. And so when I transitioned to becoming an academic, I really devoted my research career to exploring the experiences of those young people, which, by the way, up until the 80s, I know this sounds like ancient history to many of you, but up until the 80s, we paid very little attention in Canada to the situation of young people who grow up in substitute care and then have to make it on their own after. And so that became the focus of my research, and I was blessed to engage with a group of young people who in 2013, excuse me, got together to create a youth in care network. And a youth in care network is an organization run by young people for young people. There's a whole series of these all across the country. And the, Quebec was the last province to have one because we have an English system and a French system. So bilingualism became a bit of an obstacle to organizing. But I'm very proud to say that I'm now the vice president of the board of Care Jeunesse. We're a bilingual organization led by alumni of the care system. We have 260 members and uh, we're really trying to do not only support young people coming out of care, but also we're trying to engage in advocacy. So things change for them. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Verna. So lastly, we have Elijah Olize, who is uh, the founder of Black Holistic Care Youth Housing Center, a community organizer devoted to building social community infrastructure for young adults who have experienced care. So his social work values are directed towards community building, the BIPOC artist development, housing, community-based uh, policing, and anti-Black racism. So Elijah himself experienced the transition from uh, childcare to adulthood at a very early age. So can you please share with us a little bit more about your experiences and how it shaped who you are today? Uh, thank you. Um, so my I'm going to start with my name, uh, Elijah Olise, and I think that's a good way to start. I think because all these, all these like mentions like in the bio, I guess, like it's, it seems to bigger than life in a way, but um, because like I feel as if I just lived, tried to live an ordinary life, but it's um, not the reality that was presented to me growing up, right? Um, as an adult, I've, I've tried, sorry, I've tr what was your question again? Oh, I was just asking if you can tell us a little bit about your experiences and how it shaped you today. Well, I mean, yeah, not a lot of time to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I can really go through a lot of experiences, but... I believe it's it's always this like um, like an inner uh, drive I've always had to um, like in, in the belief in myself even when it didn't really exist around me and I just didn't um, I adhere to my values and beliefs growing up always and moving around the system I think you have to hold on to something and I've always tried to hold on to the healthier aspects of the of my environment whereas it's something that um, it's, it can be challenging, but like that challenge has allowed me to grow into the person I am today. Um, I've worked to stabilize myself as a young adult, um, but all all the while I was always like uh, had my eye on uh, post secondary academic um, school, like uh, academic institutions as a way to grow. I never uh, attributed growing only in these spaces, but I've valued having degrees. And, you know, my uncles 
on my father's side, um, they have, some of them have multiple degrees all around the world. And it's something that has a lot liberated them, right? And the idea of liberation is something that I've always uh, also held on to as well, because I've never felt free and I never felt uh, as if I had the same rights as my my peers, you know, because that is what happens when you're in care, your rights are trampled on in the sake of youth protection and, and what is best for you. Um, so I believe amongst those things are what would have driven me to find my own path, my own way, um, adhering to my own values, even though it, it seems sometimes I shoot myself in the foot. People think I'm opinionated. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it gets in the way, you know? But I, I think, like, at the end of the day, it's, it's where you want, uh, where I want to be, and that's who I am today because of a lot of my experiences. But like I said, it's, it's quite a bit of a question to answer, and I think you described myself any better than I could, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So I'd like to thank you all for being here today. They're all very experienced people with a lot of knowledge, and I'm so happy to be a moderator today. And um, yeah, so we'll jump right into it with some terminology definitions and some facts. Uh, it's, it's very important to uh, be aware of the words that we're using, especially in such topic, and so we'd like to start with, of course, the question about uh, which terms should we use if it's youth homelessness, unhoused youth, and sort of uh, start the conversation that way. So, uh, Elijah, if you'd like to first um, speak on this point to just sort of guide us about uh, how we should talk on this topic. I mean, I guess we'll just go back to how our conversation in preparation to um, this panel, you know, where we, Dr. Jane actually uh, mentioned language and with, with, within her own research, um, working with youth um, who experienced homelessness, right? Um, and just it not being um, who you are, like the kind of like, you know, what is a trauma-centered, uh, trauma-informed care? I, I, I prefer holistic-centered um, uh, engagement, right? Because it's, it's, it pulls the center of the practitioner to the youth, right? And that's the idea of like why you've asked us this, why you've asked me this question and the rest of the panel. It's how can we talk about these issues in a way that reflects the reality of the youth when we're talking about building policies and programming, well, we need them to co-design it. And if we're using language that's not accessible to them, it doesn't reflect their reality. It just reflects you as a practitioner then well, then it doesn't equate to the solution you're looking for. So um, I think also when we were talking, it was like youth, youth who aged out and, and you, you were like, question that, right? You're like, yeah. And, um, and then we came up with youth uh, who, uh, young adults who experienced uh, care. You know what I mean? It's it, in relation to nothing, we didn't invent it. It's just mixing around words that make sense, right? and reflect their reality, our reality, and the reality of the work that we want to get done. So um, I think I could go on to a few editors, but I, I would prefer to um, only name one editor and just um, pass it on, and it's transitional support, you know, transitional support housing programs, and like holistic ones in, in, in particular, 
It's the idea of the, the, the age-based cutoffs, uh, legislative supports that youth face once they age out. The reality is our peers, you know, the majority of us live at home for quite a bit of time. Um, and it's not the reality for youth who age out and who don't have a social network, no social capital. So the idea of holistic transitional support programs, like housing ones, are to give, f- fill those gaps, right? Provide the care, provide the support, housing, skill development, you know, community, all in a community base, right? Those are the ideas of how we can provide that support into transition into independent living, right? So uh, I want to pass it on. Of course. Um, yeah, I agree with Elijah. Um, I think when like, there's a duality to defining things as well. So um, I say young people with lived experience of homelessness, um, but also that's not how I described myself when I was a teenager. I wasn't like, I am a person with lived experience of homelessness. And so I think having choice with how people define their own um, situations, but I would also say having a broad definition of homelessness when we're talking about youth homelessness um, so that might not only look like street involvement or sleeping in shelters, but it is um, also encompassing hidden homelessness. So when I use the word homelessness, I'm talking about any person who doesn't have a safe, stable, affordable, um, reliable home, like a roof over their head. And so I think um, a broad definition of what housing precarity looks like, one that is accessible and works for the people involved and one that is dynamic. So we're continuously learning about what homelessness looks like for different people. Um, and so we want to keep changing how we're talking about it to actually be encompassing what's actually happening for young people. I wanted to just, and so this is maybe the teacher in me, I'm thinking, I'm always asking myself, so what? Like, why are we even talking about definitions? And I think it's important to explain to people that in Canada, not just in Quebec, but in Canada, child welfare systems are very much centered on protection. I mean, it was embedded in what, what Elijah mentioned, protection, which means safety, which means they're very risk averse and a risk averse system is top down because you can only manage risk through control. And so what ends up happening is a lot of the systems with of care and the systems with which young people who are marginalized young people interact are very top down where they don't have a lot of say about what happens to them. And they don't even have a voice in terms of how they're referred to. And so the whole issue of language is, and liberation, I love that, that you said that, Elijah, they're, they're very connected, uh, those two issues, language and liberation. And the other thing that I think is really important to think about is stigma and the ways in which young people who face various kinds of challenges are stigmatized and how language becomes a part of the experience of stigma. So part of what I, I believe, and I think... <laughs> We have a lot in common, the three of us. We had a great pre-meeting. I think part of the goal here in being here today is to try to destigmatize some of this, not just in terms of our explanations of what the experience is about, but also in terms of the language we use. And the thing I think that's great about that is everybody can help with that. That's not just in the purview of those of us who are more closely involved. I don't know. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Very insightful conversation. And I think it's a good way to also start with um, our first part of the panel, which we will discuss um, really what are the current issues, what are the current problems that we have in Quebec, in Canada, whatever you want to explore it. And um, 
you know, what are the links, if you'd like, uh, as a way to start this conversation, the links between childcare and, if you'd like to say, youth homelessness or unhoused youth or, um, so if you can just discuss that and how we've come to where we are today. I can start. Um, I mean, I think that the links between child welfare systems and youth homelessness are really well established. Um, we know that there's a high representation of youth who experience homelessness that come from care. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I feel like part of the issue is um, the ideas of like prevention of, of acting beforehand and the child welfare system becomes a, a way that young people are um, I think deprived of not only a voice but agency. I, I think that it's a system that pathologizes um, poverty and and barriers that are systemic. Um, and so the child, the connection between the child welfare system and youth homelessness is is overt and is clear in that there is a high representation of youth from care in youth homelessness populations. But I think it's also indicative of the institutionalization that happens to young people because they're not seen as agentic. Um, I think that both systems also we can see the overrepresentation of particular communities so we can look at the ways that the child welfare system has acted as a colonizing force in Canada um, and see also overrepresentation of indigenous peoples in homeless populations and we again can see that not as uh, individual or family failures but we can see that as systemic discrimination um yeah I'm sorry you go first okay <laughs> so we both we all have so much to say here I guess um well, there's, there's a whole bunch of things. One of the things that we touched on as well in our earlier conversations is that on paper in Canada, our commitment all across the country is to promote family life and to promote healthy family life for children in Canada. That's the discourse. In fact, because the youth protection systems across the country are so preoccupied with risk and so pathologizing, what ends up happening is that the system actually disrupts families. And so what we've created is a system where we're spending lots and lots of money to provide substitute care to young people when in fact, and you said this, Elijah, if we gave the money to the families, that would be more helpful. So we're in this kind of weird situation where we have created, and I mean, it's not it's, we have these big bureaucratic child protection agencies in every province. They're provincially administered in every province in Canada. And let me just say there are 60,000, one of the problems also, we don't have good statistics. There are about 60,000 children and youth in Canada who've been removed from their parents and placed in alternative resources. And, and with a huge overrepresentation of indigenous children and also visible minority children. And we have invested, we've chosen to invest more in alternative resources really than in family life. So that's one problem and that's part of, and the other thing that Elijah mentions that's really important is we don't provide any transitional support for these young people. So we place them in alternative situations, we remove them from their families and when the services end, and by the way, Quebec is probably the place in Canada where the services end the earliest and the most abruptly. So we're like in the armpit here of the nation in terms of these services. Kids here age out at 18, okay? 
and they have very little support afterwards. In other places, you can, in, you can be up to the uh, 27 years old in BC and get some form of financial support. Here at 18, no financial support. There's some services that you might get, but no financial support. So that's the other problem is that we don't, we take these kids away and we don't really behave. We don't bring them up in a way that's appropriate. And there's a phrase to talk about definition. There's a phrase that's used a lot. I'm going to hand this to Elijah in a minute, which is we talk about corporate parenting. So in Canada, we have endorsed, even though we say we, we honor families, we want to support families, we have endorsed a corporate parenting model where generally speaking, and especially in Quebec, I'd have to say I'm going to be very rude here, I get angry because I've been doing this a long time and I'm fed up because I'm now engaging with people who are the children of people that I worked with when I was in the system and soon it's going to be the grandchildren, right? So we suck as corporate parents. We, we have totally abdicated responsibility as corporate parents. These young people who we remove are our children. They're our children and we've, we've, and we've deprived them of their own families. So anyway, here we go. That's great. That was, I mean, um, you really provided like um, the perspective of your years of work in the system, right? And um, I, I feel like this is a very welcoming space, whereas like in the, that organizational structure, it's not, that rhetoric is not repeated. It's not shared, held, or you don't feel like it just resonates. Um, I mean, like, if you ask that question, it's a no-brainer to me, but I understand that I need to explain to other people why um, these are not just links. They're like, um, it's, you know, I guess like, you know, uh, school to prison pipeline, it's very much the same, um, you know, from care, prison, on the streets, like how experiencing homelessness, uh, you know, the standard of living. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's, who's a, who used to work with youth, like, but particularly those who are in, uh, more stru highly structured units and locked units. So they're dealing with uh, young offenders. And he told me he's like the French system, it, it, they have better numbers. You know, 70% of youth don't go to prison. At 30% do. So they're like, you know, it's a win. And I was like, he didn't mean it in a way that he believed that as like he valued that, but it's the, the rhetoric that's shared, you know, in the workspace. But it was interesting because, you know, he's on his, he just got into Miguel Law, right? And this is somebody I've known since high school. And I, and I spoke to him about it and I was like, would you be happy to not just be in jail? And he, <laughs> you can imagine his reaction. So that, that was like, uh, it, it just shows you like the disconnect, right? You know, these are people, like I really value this guy, right? But like, and he, and I feel like, you know, he separated himself from that space for a reason. And it's still like what he, the framework he's viewing the situation from, you know, until he's presented with another, you know, an intersectional one. And I think like, when I, I think of my family, I have, I have five siblings, right? Four of which, uh, including myself, grew up in care. I'm the second oldest. My older brother aged out, you know, before myself. And he like, he, had, he was housing insecure. He went through a program that kicked him out because the program didn't allow for socialization past a certain time. 
I mean, like you're an adult, man. <laughs> like, what do you like? You're you're gonna tell me that as an adult, you can't invite a, a significant other, a family med- member, even let alone a friend, to your home? Like, I think it was the reverse the way I should have said that. But the point is, is that he got he got kicked out for that, right? And and he's already leaving a system. He's like, is this gonna work? It's a weird dynamic. It's very sterilized living situation, and he's. Like I ate some of his food. I didn't even know that was like his whole thing. You know, he got up, like he I told the social worker and I was like, oh shoot, like that's, you don't have food. <laughs> like he needed more after we ate a little bit because he just wanted his brothers to be at his house. But the thing is, it's like, I housed him when I ate, when I turned 18. Actually, I moved out <laughs> before I was 18 because I was like, well, you're going to do it to me anyways. I might as well get it done with, get a little practice in. And I moved out July 1st, um, 2014, and I turned 18 August 29th. So it's not that much time ahead, but it's still. And, you know, within that time period, he, he got evicted from his first apartment and I had to house him. Now my brother, he's, he's incarcerated, you know, like due to probation, like he broke probation over something for years ago. The thing is, is that this system will continue to bring him back in and he doesn't see it as an alternative because the people around him in the, in the prison are telling him everything but that, you know, like his dialogue, everything starts to change. My other siblings have got to a place where they're housing secure, you know, now, but it's been years, you know, we're all in our 20s. Um, my brother Daniel, he just got enrolled in school as well, and um, that he, he saw it as, a, as something I I did as a as a mature student, and that experience um, really just uh, sorry, I'm just you're smiling a lot, so it was kind of bugging. It was just like distracting me. No, no, the person in behind you, but it's okay, no worries. Um, but um, sorry, that experience um, just um, completely. Going, getting enrolled into school, it showed him a path to doing the same, even though he thought it was too late for himself, right? And he's a little younger, so I'm happy he got to do it a little younger than me, got back onto that track. And, um, but the reality is, is that like, I had so many of my peers who I grew up with come through my doors at different points for the first year or so, and it was really chaotic, you know, having that many people in my house. You know, when you think about it, you should always have a place to live. It should be your right. But a lot of people don't have to think about that as as something that is a question. So when you don't think about a right, something that is not a right, but a privilege, but just expected or entitled to it, you can't imagine a reality that is, is anything but that. And so I say that to say because from the ages of 20 to 29, you know, Canadian young adults are living at home, 42%, right? And that's not even considering the ages of 18 to 20. And these are pre, pre-pandemic numbers as well, right? You know, there's numbers saying that 50% of youth who age out of care, uh, 50% of youth who experience homeless, young people who experience homelessness are from care or have experienced care in some, some way, right? These are numbers that exist. It's not... A reality that you know because I because our reality is disconnected from yours and that is also part of the problem 
the social connection, the social capital, the social network, it's non-existent, right? In a lot of ways. So when we try to create it with our minimal resources, it's, yeah, it's not very sustainable, but thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your insights. And I think I have a kind of a question about, you know, how much do you carry the system with you once you're in it? You know, once you hit the age of 18, for example, here in Quebec, like it, it does follow you, especially um, according to your, especially your brother's experience. But what has, you know, the current situation right now, are they doing anything to sort of improve that? And, and when you hit the age of 18, like what are you being told? What is the system sort of showing, like what is the system giving to you before you become like a young adult? So um, I was, I listened to the first part and then I was drinking water, so. But I'll, I'll try to answer your question the best to my ability. And um, I, I think... <laughs> Did you repeat that question? Sorry. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, because you have been through the the, the system. Yeah, I, re I heard. The, I remember now. Okay. okay good. So for me, it was like I think every like I can only talk for myself, right? And I think like speaking to others, like I have uh, three other siblings I talk to all the time who went through care. So it's different, you know. And uh, even the work I'm doing, I've had like mixed reviews. <laughs> yeah, and um, but like. Now it's like there's it's 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 a, a happy thing in my family, hundred percent. But the thing is, it's like why I say that I, I've only been doing this for about two years. You know, uh, oh, actually, it's twenty twenty three, so about three years are going on. And before that, I, I worked in sales. You know, I, before like, and I had a solid thing going for me. Um, But before that, I had odd jobs, worked in restaurants, did a lot of hospitality, you know, and I was trying to raise mo save money, raise money. I, I guess it makes it's fitting, but um, I was trying to save money so I could um, really secure myself, go back to school, like figure things out, um, pay for things I never had, like, you know, laptops, you know, <laughs> like I actually buy that while also getting into school. Anyways, so... Those were things that were on my mind. Coming from care, I, I kind of just, like, if you could picture, like, uh, I don't want to use this Harry Potter reference, but, like, a, dement, a dementor coming, like, grabbing on you and just get the hell off me with, like, uh, one of those spells. I was doing that, and I was away from that. I just pulled myself, like, when I said it was chaotic leaving care, I meant it. So I had to remove myself from that situation, even though I really wanted to help my peers in France to, 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 to see them reach their potential. Because unfortunately, like some of the people that I wanted to help are actually dead now. So like, that's not a reality that I can help anymore. I can't go to them and be like, look, I'm in a place that I could support you and be like, here's, here's some support. I can't do that because they're not here on this earth. So, but in that moment, I, I had to like really hold on to myself, what I believed in, And I didn't want to become cold. I, I, I love myself. I love like my humanity, that I'm a caring person, even though some people have taken advantage of that. I will continue doing that and feeling empathy. And, but I just needed to do that towards myself at that point. So, and, and the system was like everything that I would, I would have hated about myself. You know, everything, that, all the negative things that I had in my head 
you know, like the viewpoints that I'm, I'm, I'm dysfunctional, I'm, I have deficits, you know, I, I have a problem, like, what is it, ODD, oppositional defiance disorder? Like, that's insane, you know what I mean? It's like, they didn't realize I'm black. Like, <laughs> this is a different reality that I'm going through. And it's like, sometimes the authority is the problem. And naming that, speaking truth to power, then uh, lands you in deficit, a mental health problem, a pathology, as you guys are saying. You know what I mean? It's, it's the idea that if you're just experience your trauma in a space that's supposed to be safe for you to do so, it's a problem. They're normalizing, saying that that's an issue. You know what I mean? This trauma-centered, trauma-informed centered, trauma -centered uh, practice, practicing, uh, practitioner way of doing things is very separated from like holistic-centered engagement, right? And mm -hmm. I, I feel like without realizing that's what I was trying to practice on myself and, and only like in 2020, I, I, I really got involved, I started working in nonprofits and uh, at the end of 2019, uh, I was volunteering um, in youth drop-in centers and my like civic nature, I guess you could say like my service to community started um, there, you know, it didn't start with youth from care. So it didn't follow me to the point where I was like, this is, this is it. And I just want to, there's this one thing that really stuck with me. And it's like Ubuntu, it's a South African term, and it's meaning humanism is found through our interdependence, collective engagement, and service to others. And I feel like along those lines is what was driving me to finish my nine to five and go straight to volunteering, right? Because I, that's just what was calling me the, like to the whole. And afterwards, I, um, I ended up getting in the streets for demonstrations against speaking more truth to power against, um, you know, municipalities, the government, police, you know. And for me, it was always in the back of my mind, but it, the forefront was what I was, I was doing. And I think that it resurfaced in the end of the summer of 2020 when I was like, how can I action these beliefs? How can I do something about the way our community is? And who is the most vulnerable that I could focus on? And I was like, well, fuck. It's, it's, it's a no brainer. It was me. So um, I guess that's when I was really had to reconnect and get back into things. And it was like a can of worms in, in, in some ways that, but I didn't compartmentalize it. I, I was ready for it. But in, in some ways, these follow people for like, it follows you forever. You know, it's it's who how you view yourself when you look in the mirror. You know what I mean? I, it's what you think you're capable of. I've seen the most intelligent people think they can't. They can't do. Anyways, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like I really want to give space to others to speak. So, of course. Well, Vera, I think it kind of goes back to your point about control, and and he mentioned how you know they were probably giving him some diagnosis and, and, and stuff like that. And I think it kind of goes to your point about control and to risk, sort of assess the risk around it. So if you 
can explore that. Um, well, I was just, yeah, I mean, I was relating a lot to many things that you were saying, and I think the ways that the system follows us around, like, why also, the first time I got a stable apartment, like, I was, I experienced homelessness for the first time at 15, I had people living with me, and I, I've tried to find that out, how can I support members of my community and other communities, um, but the system prevents communities from taking care of themselves, and the state does not care for us, and then doesn't give us the resources to care for ourselves. But I think the ways that this follows you, um, you know, post-secondary is not presented as an option for youth from care or youth experiencing homelessness. You get this idea in your head that you can't do these things. And then that's confirmed when you enter these spaces and they are not made for you. Um, I think also speaking to the ways that communities are dying, like, you know, part of being someone with lived experience of homelessness is that many of your friends are dead. Um, and so even trying to work to support community against state systems that harm um, is like trying to like plug a boat with a hole in it. Uh, maybe there's dementors there too, but it, it's exhausting work and communities don't always have the capacity to do it in sustained ways. Um, but I would also say the way that systems follow, we can look at homelessness and statistics, which I know are, are problematic in some ways, but we know that if someone has their first experiences of homelessness before the age of 16, they're far more likely to have chronic homelessness throughout their lives. It's significant. And so that sets you up into a cycle of housing precarity, educational disengagement that follows you throughout your adult life and sometimes throughout your entire life cycle. And so things that happen to you when you're young can have significant impacts moving forward, not only in how you think of yourself, how others view you, but also um, the access you have to spaces. And I think um, your work and, and both of your work aims to change that, but it needs to change a lot more quickly. You know, I could, I could sort of, the good news and the bad news is I worked in the system, right? So I was part of that, which is kind of, anyway, not therapy for me now, but just saying, I, you know, I was part of that. And, uh, and it's really humbling to be here with the two of you. And so I could cite all the research that talks about identity development and youth from care and, and trauma and all of that. But it's, it, it also contributes to stigma and it contributes to a top-down view. And the bottom line is that we here in Quebec and in Canada, we're bringing up kids, we take them away from their parents, we bring them up and we... we subject them to a situation where not only are they controlled, but it turns out that one of the most important things in, um, in a successful transition to adulthood is that the people around you express faith in your capacity to take care of yourself and in your capacity to, to accomplish things. And one of the things that, that people talk about a lot when they talk about care is that it's, it is, characterized by the tyranny of low expectations, okay? That we expect very little from these kids. And I was very, very blessed to be at a graduation ceremony of, um, in Toronto. There's a group in Toronto called the Canadian Foundation of Children's Aid Societies. And they raise money to support youth from care through their education all across the country. And every year they have a ceremony where they have the kids who've graduated. And these are kids who graduating from law school, from graduate school, from all over. And they, uh, they had a valedictorian, this was in October, who got up and his whole speech was about, was really interesting. He said, it's like, it's as if I was a fish my whole life. And then suddenly somebody said, you have to climb a tree now. 
But if you think you're a fish, you're never going to believe that you can climb a tree. And he said, all of us who are from the care system, who've been able to make a life for ourselves, we're like fish who could climb trees. Okay, we were never prepared for life, but somehow, despite that, we were able to do it. And it takes tremendous strength and courage and clarity and also, I think, resistance. You know, I think part of the, I was laughing when you said, what did you say, oppositional defiant disorder? You know, I have a colleague in the U.S. who wrote a beautiful article called The Catastrophe of Compliance. Compliance, learning to be compliant, is a catastrophic outcome for anybody, okay? Because being compliant does not prepare you for life. And care systems love compliance in kids. And we label kids who are non-compliant. Instead of seeing any, any person who's developed a sense of agency one day looks at the face of their caregiver and says, you're wrong. I don't agree with you. F off. I want to live my own life. And when that happens to you in care, it's like a hammer comes down on your head. Okay? Instead of saying, wow, this is an emerging personality. This is strength. This is what we should nurture. So... I think these are all very interesting points in that they, they sort of, we can see clearly that there's a link between how you've been, uh, how people have been seeing you and sort of uh, describing you to yourself and how we could potentially lead to lack of, if I can use the word, like maybe self-esteem. And, and would you think that that sort of the fact that you were always being told things about yourself, but maybe the fact that you can't explore yourself, do you think that can also lead to sort of um, the situation of being unhoused and, and facing all these challenges? Or, or is there more than just that? I, I just, I have to say this. I mean, I think that, yes, yes, absolutely. But I think there are much more fundamental problems in that. And yesterday, yesterday, I taught a class. One thing that makes me totally crazy, Elijah... Jane, is when I go into a place where young people live and the food is locked up. That makes me so crazy, okay? Because that is so, how can you even talk about self-esteem when you can't get food when you're hungry? And when you don't have the right to just eat when you're hungry? I don't get it. So to me, that's like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. Self-esteem is way up there. We're talking about people who are on a very basic level, their needs are not being met. And so psychologically, you know, of course, yeah, you can't develop self-esteem when the people around you are giving you negative messages, but you can't develop self-esteem when you're going through puberty and you're starving and you can't get a bloody banana at two o'clock in the afternoon. Like that makes me crazy. You're hitting all my hotspots here, sorry. Um, no, when I was uh, in care, like the, the food being locked up, I was like, I love snacks, like cookies, especially. Um, I, don't, I had a, a nickname called Cookie Monster because I just love cookies and ice cream. The combination is amazing, but um, you got to microwave the cookies first. But the thing was, is that, yeah, they locked the food. And, you know, some staff would be like, yo, they, they understood the program. Like, they got the assignment. They came and gave you the cookies when you wanted the cookies because that's what they got and they give their kids. Like, it's, it's cookie time, right? But um, the, the thing is, is that I, uh, like, I, even at, like, 15, I could think I could know when I, when I, when I can eat my own cookies. Like, what, how many I could eat. Like, I'm not, like, I have any health problems in that sense. 
and phew, no, like uh, it would. There was a staff, and she would eat food and be like, "No," <laughs> and I'd be like, "Wait, so you're telling me that you're literally hungry right now? You're experiencing hunger, and there's no empathy to say his child is maybe hungry too." And so I would actually just uh, break into the cookie, uh, the, the the closet of food with cookies to get my cookies all the time. And uh, that was my story, I guess you could say, because I, I think like, yeah, cookies should be free. But look, then it becomes conceptualized as stealing, right? Going for food and a lot. Anyway, but I just want to, one other thing I'm going to give this to yeah. you, Jane, which is these are systemic problems. I don't want you to go out there thinking everybody who works in the child welfare system is uh, cruel. We're talking about underfunded agencies funded by governments that do not make children and youth a priority, okay? It's a political issue. When did you hear the word child in the provincial election running up to the provincial? You didn't hear it. So I don't want you to hate all the workers either. Yeah, I was going to say something similar that like um, individual supports... Um, individualized supports, holistic supports, um, like Elijah's been talking about, but systems change. Um, and that everything I've heard and, and in my experiences as well is that like an individual worker who is great, who is often breaking the rules to support that young person can change someone's life and can save someone's life. Teachers, um, social workers, but the majority of the system and the work that is organized within that system is not serving young people. So individuals are important, but the system is what we have to focus on. So yes, individual self-esteem and individual growth is important, um, but the system itself is what inhibits that. And I think the way that we treat people who are experiencing homelessness um, are the way we treat children in general, which is that they don't have agency, they can't make choices, and if they're not going to follow the rules, then they don't get support. So, so many young people I know get kicked out of school or school is not a safe place for them, and then they lose their housing program. And so then they are on the street, they don't have access to school, they don't have access to supports, and so it's really placed on them that they failed or they stole cookies, so they're going to get kicked out. Um, and, and we don't look at the system and how the system is failing them, but we look at that individual person and see it as a personal failure, and that has to be a huge shift um, and not treating people like they can't make decisions about what they need. Uh, I would also take food and bring it back to my mom's house as well when I was in care that because I would visit her on the weekends. And there was a lot of extra food it would expire all the time and it would, didn't make any sense you know what I mean like so um also part of like my mom losing us to the system she has to pay the system as well because uh, and also lose uh tax benefits so it's like it's a it's a cycle right that is created with poverty uh it's just stacked on right imagine like oh now how am I supposed to get my kids back I can't afford to do a lot of the things that they're requiring me to do um, and, and so like food, like coming on the weekends, showing that we can be there, showing that we can be supported at our house is part of the process of getting back home to say, oh, she could do that. But if you can, if you're coming back hungry, then it looks like she's not doing it, but you're not providing any food for her, any, any, any other additional support. So I would just take food back and uh, provide that. But you know, like the self-esteem, you know, uh, self-worth is so important. You know, I, I like to think of like what uh, BHCYC, like a lot of the focus is on like housing security and financial security, like uh, skill development. And, but when I say based in community, based community practices, like, like we have to think about more than just 
giving somebody the, the superficial needs, but like what they've been missing, right? And yeah, these links are, are, are there and like you could attribute it to these very like surface level things, but like if you wanna get radical, which means not extreme, but just providing root-based solutions, that's what you need to do, so. So would you say that the system is, is primarily based on punishment from what I understand? Like you, you've mentioned that if you get kicked out of school, you also would get, get kicked out of the housing system kind of. So uh, what's the basically what's the uh, like the main approach of this system? Like when someone would read through the procedures or what's the, the general approach on, you know, how to support these kids? What's the government's way of essentially supporting according to the government? I think we have to be really careful, okay? I think, and, and Jane said it really well, there are good people and there are good places, okay? So let's be clear. It's not like a total, it's not, but overall, overall, okay? Um, overall, the system is, the system and the, because we also have to talk about the application of child, child protection legislation, how youth end up in care in the first place. It's all protection-oriented and safety-oriented. I wouldn't say it's punishment-oriented, but it's protection and safety-oriented. And when you're preoccupied with somebody's safety more than their self-esteem or their connection, their feeling of connection or the quality of their relationships, you're just trying to keep people safe, you become very controlling, okay? So I would say, and if it's punitive, it's because out of a controlling, very controlling, top-down you don't have a choice. I'm going to protect you. I mean, people do this with their kids and families, right? We all know about people like that. And if you're so, so obsessed with protection, then a lot of things go out the window. And I think that's the problem. And that's why it ends up being punitive. It's not because the goal of the system is to beat people. It's more like there's a fear. There's a fear that if you're in a group home and you have, eat, well, there's budget problems, there's the economy, the economics of it. But if you're in a group home and you have free access to food, then there's not going to be enough to go around. So there's always this kind of, this, this catastrophizing and this preoccupation with protecting people from harm. And what is hard to explain is that when you're obsessed with protecting people from harm, you actually cause harm. Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, I know uh, there's, nah. anyway. Um, one example I can give is uh, in schools. So in Canada, uh, including Quebec, there's absolutely no policies relating to youth homelessness in schools. Schools do not imagine youth homelessness as something that they need to worry about. If a young person signals that they might be at risk of homelessness, um, the DPG gets contacted. So the child protection program. And so I spoke with so many young people. I myself was one of these young people where they didn't say anything was wrong because they knew that the only reaction would be to contact child welfare um, or some other kind of enforcement. Um, and so they would keep things quiet because they might have seen in their life cousins or friends be taken away from their families. And so they wouldn't say, hey, I think my family might lose their home um, because the only response was contacting child welfare. And so um, this is a point of possibility for changing things. But as of right now, um, it's seen as a punishment by young people as well. I was just like reflecting on um, a lot of what they were saying. Um, within, the, within the system, I mean, there's like DYP, Department of Youth Protection, you have, well, that's changed now, but when I was there, and they have a name, Basha, 
youth and family services. It's supposed to be youth protection, but the idea of family services was always like ironic or funny to me because I I never seen that. You know, I mean, I have a big family. My mom really could have used that. And you know, talking about money, it's like what sixty thousand per per kid who's in the system. Like it's it's like you're enrolled in some fancy university or something, but you're not in Harvard. You're in you're a random place that doesn't make sense because your family somewhere else and you want to be there. But the idea of like group homes when you could provide like a uh, communal living for families who need support as a possibility, like what are you designing? What are you, what is the outcome that you're looking to create? Are you looking this control that you've talked about? What, what direction are we pushing in and who has been not to say re, but there are people who hold power and decision-making ability that speak for all and who are, if they were in that reality, I'm highly sure that they would change a lot of those policies. Because I always said when I was in care, how can you make choices in my life, but you don't get to experience the outcomes. You got to go home and, and do whatever else. And I have my social worker from when I was younger apologize to me, you know, and she's like, you know, you're just trying to like hold us accountable in a sense, you know, and it's like, but that apology is very late for me. So sorry, Karen. But uh, yeah. So um, I think uh, now we'll jump into the second half of the panel. Thank you so much for your insights. And now we want to talk about actually growing out of the system. So how can we improve the system that we have right now in Quebec? Um, essentially, if we can dive into the details of what's lacking and, and what could help the system that we have in place. So I know you've touched upon some just right now about how if you haven't experienced it, then you know how can you make policies around it, right? So if we can start off with that, I mean, any of you welcome to speak upon that. Yes, I think uh, Elijah is 100% right. I think the fact that decisions are being made by people who don't have those lived experiences and, and actually have very different lived experiences is ridiculous um, and unfair and inequitable and ineffective. Um, we know that this doesn't work. So there has to be measures in place. And some of those measures are how can we support people from care and people with lived experience of homelessness to access education that allows them to enter these spaces. But then how can we also change those spaces so you don't need a PhD to sit at the table? Um, I did that and I have seen how it's changed where I can access and how I can advocate. But not everyone wants to do that, should be able to do that. So I think lived experience baked into how we structure systems is really important. Um, a lot of my recommendations for doing things differently aren't in the child welfare system, but are rather in the education system, which I see as a really important point of prevention. Um, so if schools where young people often already are can be spaces of care and community and support rather than places of punishment and exclusion, um, then that's a really important point. We see this in other provinces. We see this in other countries. If there can be school-based prevention and supports, um, often families are supported well before they be experience homelessness or they're, they're separated. Um, there's some programs called uh, Family Reconnect um, that are being piloted elsewhere where that's it. At the point of, of intervention, the family is given the supports they need, whether that's um, mental health supports, whether that's financial supports, educational supports, 
uh, food supports. Um, so making sure that the materials are met for everyone to be as well as they can be, and then continuing to assess from there. And so that that is something that I think Quebec could be doing. Um, the, there's capacity there, um, and I think just making that shift is really important. Yeah, I mean, um, I really enjoyed the preventative uh, lens or the frame and and how you see it being most useful and effective in school and education systems. Because, I mean, if, if I could, I like to be story-based. So I remember when I was like 14, realizing that the system, like the schooling, I, I was like a bit of a black sheep. I don't like to use that term, but I was stigmatized. And the idea, what I'm saying is, when you're, when you're youth in care from foster kid, group home kid, you're, they know automatically. And it's a different experience that you get, even from your teachers. You know, like picture like when you in class, maybe you had a problem um, or an issue, and what, and it was then told to the principal or or like the teacher. Not, forget about the principal. Bring it back to the teacher. Just talking to your parents, and that experience with somebody who knows you, who loves you. Speaking for you on your behalf and then trying to figure out a plan to better your education and to do better by you is not happening when you're in the system. You don't, it depends on who picks up the phone first. Like, imagine you're like, if Jennifer picked up the phone, oh my God, I would have been on punishment for a whole week if I, just because I forgot to do my homework instead of like providing help. To, to make sure I could t manage my time to do my homework. You know what I mean? Because like I, that was an a, um, executive dysfunction I, was, uh, I definitely was dealing with. So the thing is, it's like that, that path those, where it's like a fork in a row, you make choices that um, then have like long-term effects. And I remember to this day as, as not something that I'm responsible for. Because what I was trying to do was get myself in a school that reflected my needs and accommodated that and also real, re, like uh, valued my, my neurodivergency, right? And I looked at, I found a school and it was a private school, but there was money, scholarship opportunities and there was different ways. But I did all that at 14, 15. And I was, and I, and I, all I was asking to set up a meeting with them because I spoke to the principal and everybody, and they were like, this could be a great school for you, right? And that's not the opportunity. Instead, they sent me up north, which, <laughs> which if you know up north, the different reality, because I was argumentative, challenging the program, and uh, I would want to do my own thing. And yeah, it, it was a whole shabam. But like, if we can just like listen and just take a moment to listen, what's the problem with that? At the end of the day, and I, I, when we talk about changes, I think for me, it's, it's yes, there's, I, I want to support the people who are providing preventative support for, 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 for families and for you to not actually enter care. Because at the end of the day, like that is, that is like the goal. Like you don't want any young people to grow up in care. But if I'm to like reflect on the youth of the 2000 youth who age out and become adults every year, I, I think like, as policymakers, like this is our time because to focus on it, there's a sense of urgency that needs to be adopted and felt, right? Because 
we are continuously um, pushing these youth, young adults off the plank, right? And we're paying for the sharks and all the whole, the whole thing anyways. So let's just pay for it, a solution, right? Instead of creating more complex and compounded problems. And, you know, when a community-based supports, I, I think like, why do we expect people to, who don't hold the capacity to provide the solution to do so? Right. Like we as a society should also um, extend empathy towards them as well. And, and, and how we can actionize by providing a community support for these infrastructures to work. As a community, we are accountable for that health. And if we're going to take that seriously, then we need to engage in the solution making ourselves. And yeah, I just I, I feel like I could give examples, but. I love to hear your thoughts as well. I wanted to add two other things. This is so complicated. I think there are two other things that are really important to think about. And uh, maybe at more of a systemic level, I think we have a problem in Canada, which is that we don't think of children and young people as having rights. Canada was, a, you know, there is a, a UN document, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that was adopted, I don't know, about 10 years ago maybe, Jane? I don't know, but... And countries, UN countries, signed off on the convention. And the convention isn't just a passive document. There's an accountability built in so that every country that signed that was a signatory gets a report card. By the way, the US never signed, eh? Canada signed, the US never signed. Anyway, Canada has crapped that. They'd be, they'd be, we'd flunk them out of Concordia based on their report card because they now have been reviewed two or three times and the reviews are getting worse. So that the, the record of honoring child and youth rights in Canada is abysmal compared with even other like, uh, you know, Canada is a rich country, one of the richest countries in the world. And we have an abysmal record of dealing with child rights. So that's for every child, not just children in care. If we look at the rights of looked after children, it gets even worse. And there is a document. So there are thing I'm trying to say is there are frameworks, there are blueprints. Jane's talking about there are programs and I hear Elijah's advocating for caring and compassion and, and listening. But I think on a, on a societal level, we don't really talk about children enough in Canada. Okay, so that's one thing. We certainly don't talk about children in child welfare. And in child welfare systems, we don't have an appreciation that those kids, even the littlest kids, they have rights. They have a right to have a say. They have a right to be consulted. They have a right to make choices about what they eat and what they wear and where they go to school. And we don't honor those rights. So that's one problem. I think the other problem, and this is where we have to start thinking about political activism, which I'm trying to learn about at my advanced age, is not easy, is that there, people are making choices about how to spend money in Quebec. Quebec, and there are models all across the country for, uh, there are tuition waiver programs in other provinces where no young person has to ever pay tuition to go to post-secondary school. There's money for housing, that's not and that's not dependent on whether you're a good kid or a bad kid. Everybody gets it, there's entitlements. And there are countries in the world, most industrialized or global North countries now have federal legislation where they legislate entitlements for kids who grow up and care because there's a real they really walk the talk of these are our children. We don't have that legislation in Canada. That means if you're 18 in Quebec, you're out on your ass. 
If you're 26 in BC, you get support. It's unbelievable. So it's a tragic, the territorial injustices that are being perpetrated in Canada. And, you know, I, there was a commission here. I don't know if you're aware there a number of years ago, there was a death of a child in foster care and they struck a provincial commission. And I, I was invited. I was very honored to go and testify. And when I said to people and I gave them the statistics and said, you know, Quebec's the worst place to grow up in care in the whole country, they were like shocked. And these were, these were, these were important people. Um, and I, I tried to shame them <laughs> into, into th but it, but it really is the case. So I think we also have to find ways to express to our politicians that we as citizens are concerned about young people and they need to walk their talk. I don't know. They have some, I forget what the slogan is. There's some slogan in French about, you know, in Quebec, we care about kids or something. You, do either of you remember that? Anyway, they don't do it. They don't do it. And they're making decisions about how to spend money. So they put money into other things that are much, I think, much, much less vital. I actually wanted to add to what you were talking about Quebec and like the unique experience here. Um, one of the things I remember recently, like with the um, within the research we're doing and a public forum that's happening next month, is is uh, the class action lawsuit right against the federal government, right? And youth who in care are the claimants, right? And that's not something that other countries have. But something we have, because it had to happen, because there wasn't that change, that transformation that that was needed. So, I I, I think back to like um, C ninety two and how Quebec government is fighting that right now, you know, and that is where they decide to spend their money and their energy. C ninety two is the right for indigenous communities to provide youth protection services, uh, culturally specific ones in a community setting and to be resourced by the government. So provincially, um, the, the money is, is, is distributed to their own uh, programs and their own services, uh, but the federal government gives each province that money in the first place. So that's where it's like, becoming a complication where it's like, there is no uh, desire to collaborate, right? And, but these are rights that are held internationally. These are UN rights. And it's something that if you just take a moment to reflect on, why are you challenging that? And the only thing I would, I would add is like, you know, the, every, every time I read a statistic, like a new statistic, like five, every five and one and five, no, is it? Uh, yeah, anyways, I don't really want to go down that path right now. <laughs> the point is, is that in, in care, we, we, are, we are situated uh, around the problem, whereas like outside of care, the transition support programs aren't in people's minds. And I think like when I, when I talked, when Barda was like talking about my, what I, compassion and listening and all those different humanistic values, it has to be centered in some a space, a housing, right? And that is the programming that I'm, I'm looking to be part of the solution, right? And make an ecosystem, create an ecosystem of support in a way. And it, it, that support will extend to youth in care, right? Will help youth who are coming out of care be 
provide, get ready, develop the readiness, right? And um, I think like that's, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you brought up, you know, different provinces like such as BC and, and just a question here, like is there a country that maybe Canada can, I guess, get inspired from or if there's a country out there that's doing it right and, and you know, if there's a way that we can at least know about different ways that it's being done out there. I think there are many countries that do it better than Canada. I have to say that, that I, and I'm part of an international research consortium of, of uh, researchers who do research on the transition from care to uh, adulthood. And so I meet with people from many other countries in the world. There are a whole bunch of countries that are doing better than us. Brazil, which is a poor country, just adopted new national legislation around entitlements for youth leaving care. Romania, which used to be thought of as the worst place because it was an orphanage-based child welfare system, they are totally revamping their child welfare system. You know, And these are countries that don't have the resources that we have in Canada. Even the U.S. has federal legislation, and there are there's, it, it, has, it isn't equally good in all parts of the U.S., but California has done some amazing things. So there are models out there, and truthfully, I was, again, privileged to be able to consult with some of the lawyers who wrote up the recommendations to the Laurent Commission. I, that documentation is easy to find if you want to find it. You know, just as Jane's talking about, you know, be, much better programs for supporting families. It's a question of will. It's a question of deciding that that is a priority. Right, and that, that fight. and Elijah's right. You know how much money it costs to fight this with C ninety. They're putting the money's being put into other things. It's just not a priority. Now, um, the question is: How can we, as individuals here who haven't necessarily experienced it, how can we help? And I think Elijah kind of touched upon it. And I just want to know, based on on your personal experience, and and is there a way, like and even as voters, like even as people who kind of have a say in this society, what, what can we do? What can we do to help, you know, everyday action or, you know, if it's about, I know it's a lot about question about funding too, but then do we have a say in it and how can we make sure that our voices are heard as well? I do have to leave shortly, um, but very quickly, uh, I would say education is a huge part of it. Um, I think, Elijah, you've really highlighted how it's difficult to make decisions or act on something that you don't understand. And so I think youth homelessness is something a lot of people don't understand. I think people sometimes even think it doesn't exist. So I would say learn, um, but learn with humility and learn from communities who are most impacted by these issues. Um, listen and um, think of how you can incorporate action into your everyday life. So maybe that looks like many different things. Political action can look like going out in the streets. It can look like lobbying. Um, it can look like trying to put pressure on policymakers. It can look like raising funds. Um, and I think all of those things are valid um, and it will take all of those things to change the system. Um, but I think education is the biggest piece. You know, so many young people have told me if I would have heard about what homelessness could have looked like for me in school and learned about it, it would be destigmatized and I probably could have prevented it because I would have said, hey, that sounds like something happening to me. So I think education about the realities of the system that are based in people's lived experiences is an amazing first start um, for everyone, including allies. Yeah, um, that was really beautiful and eloquently uh, said. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Um, 
I think I, I always ask myself this question, but I, I can't answer because it's not my reality. I, I think like uh, I'm very pragmatic in nature based. And um, when I consider other people uh, who haven't experienced my, what I've experienced, I can only tell them is to get involved, support, provide resources, um, and things that might sound ridiculous. But like, yeah, lobby your government, like actually be like, this is a problem that I want to solve. But it's really just about like, are you, do you feel a sense of accountability as an individual within a collective to the health of your community or do you feel separate? And it's like this division needs to be removed in, in, a, in more ways than one. Uh, it's not just for youth experiencing care, it's between each other. Um, if we're going to end up giving any kind of real supports, that is what is necessary. And what I mean by that, it's like, I could, I could talk all day about all the different things like mentorship, like if you have skills, like provide those skills to youth who are seeking uh, that learning, seeking to acquire them. Or I could tell you that, you know, um, we need money for housing. So we're trying to build a building. So do that, like give us that. Or I could be like, well, there is this, uh, like provide actual financial support um, there's so many things that you could do, but the reality is it's like, it won't be sustained unless there's like a collective transformation or cultural, cultural shift in how we go about providing, uh, social, uh, infrastructure, like social support to these youth, to any problem, um, that is plaguing our society because we're very reactive and not preventative based. So. Fantastic. I, I, I don't have much to add except to say there are things going on at Concordia, I mean, uh, there are two bursaries um, that have been created. They're hard to find on the website, which is very unnerving uh, because it's not easy for people who should have access to them to have access to them. But there are bursaries at Concordia. Care Jeunesse, which is the organization that I work with, that I've been mentoring, has a very strong connection to Concordia. Their offices are at Concordia. We are always looking for volunteers. We are always looking for donations. We create we're trying to create programs for young people who are out from out of the system and are looking for um, a sense of community. So there, there are many, many things that even an individual can do. If you have a little bit of time, don't need money, uh, get involved. And even when Jane said before, it was funny, she said just one person um, who has a belief in you as a young person, that can make a huge difference in a person's life. The child welfare system, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to advocate for the system, but they're always looking for volunteers. They need tutors. They need big brothers, big sisters. They need people to go in there and help them. And you can really make a huge difference if you get involved. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, lastly, you know, like I think Jane touched upon it very well, but the stigma, and I think she brought a very important point about how when you get informed about homelessness, you can know when it's actually happening to you as well. And I think that, uh, you know, everything that was spoken about today is very interesting. And I would like to thank you for for sharing your experiences, your research, your work. That was pretty much a wrap. So thank you, everyone, for coming, even on the Zoom. And uh all good? Yeah, yes? Okay. okay, thank you very much. <laughs> awesome, okay, well we are going to go ahead, close up the Zoom, but thank you for a great conversation and a reminder that this was being live streamed to YouTube and it is available to rewatch right now and you can share it with your colleagues. So thank you so, so much and have a great day. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. 
You can contact us by email at info.4.concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU4thSpace. All social media is managed by Jacqueline Wexler. This episode of the 4th Space podcast is hosted by me, Maximus Delmar, and produced by Anna Vaklavec and Douglas Moffat. Editing by myself, Douglas Moffat, and Chanel Lees Marshall. Additional thanks to Supercontinent for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.